0: O Christ, the true light, who dost enlighten and sanctify every man that cometh into the world, let the light of thy countenance be signed upon us, and in it we may behold the unapproachable light, and guide our steps in the performance of thy commandments, by the intercessions of thine All-Immaculate Mother, and of all thy saints. Amen. So we continue with our readings of the life of the Theotokos. Last time, two weeks ago, we were uh, discussing the end, the meeting of our Lord in the temple, Uh, where he was taken 40 days after his birth, uh, and he was uh, fulfilling the command that all firstborn of a woman, all male firstborn of a woman, are dedicated to God. And the next chapter in the book has to do with the the slaughter of the 14,000 innocent children. As we read a couple chapters before, we know that the three wise men who were Persian magi, the magi were a particular group of scholars uh, who were very influential in the Persian empire, which was the main rival of the Roman empire at the time. Um, they had passed through Jerusalem and then inquired about a Messiah because of course they, they were the intellectual descendants of the intellectual inheritors, the Holy Prophet Daniel, um, many centuries before, who was very wise, he was a prophet, and had taught the Magians, which is the group of Magi, um, some of the truths about the one God, including the prophecy of the Messiah, and so they had seen the star in the sky. They went through Jerusalem. They inquired. Herod, of course, noticed them because they were very important people. They were part of the council that elected the Persian king. And so Herod brought him to his palace. Herod was, this is Herod the Great. Herod the Great was um, the king of uh Judea, uh, and he had replaced the native kings, the Israelite kings, the, the dynasty of kings called the Hasmoneans, who were, uh, came to power in Judea uh, after the rebellion of the Maccabees. We have the, book of, the books of the Maccabees in the New, Old Testament, that Tells about their story how they uh, rebelled against the Greeks who uh, ruled the uh, Seleucid Empire, which controlled Judea at the time in Syria and large parts of Mesopotamia. So the Hasmoneans were actual Jews, um, but Herod the Great came to power uh, in 40 BC. Uh, and he, was installed, he became governor of Galilee. By this time, the Romans had come through. Um, and in 40 BC, he was elected by the Roman Senate to be the king of all of Judea. Right? And he wasn't an Israelite. He was an Edomite. Uh, the Edomites were an uh, ethnic group that was related to the Jews, to the Israelites, um, and uh, they spoke a similar language, and they were uh, they were considered to be um, descendants of Abraham, um, and they're the descendants of Esau, in particular. And so, but they were not Israelites. They were semi-barbarous, in other words. Um, They had not kept the law. Um, They were not in the inheritance, in the direct inheritance of, of Abraham, even though they were descendants of Abraham, because they had not kept the same faith. And so Herod is an outsider who's been installed by outsiders, by Romans. As the king of Judea. And so um, the presence of Persians is interesting in itself, but the news about the birth of a Messiah is particularly troubling uh, to Herod because Herod knew that the Messiah was the king of Israel. He was a legitimate Israelite king. And so, like any illegitimate ruler, he was troubled. And and, um, and seriously uh, threatened by the possibility that he could be overthrown in order to be replaced by a real Israelite king. And remember the Israelites at the time, the, the Jews, Israelites, Jews, Judeans are all the same people. Uh, they expected not just the coming, well, they expected something specific of the Messiah. They expected the coming of a political Ruler who would restore the empire of David, um, and uh, and this who he would be from the house of David, right? Because he was supposed to be a descendant of David, and so the legitimacy of the Messiah was was unquestionable and was much greater uh, than that of of Herod. And if you remember the uh, the three Magi bypassed Jerusalem on their way back uh, when they returned back to Mesopotamia. And uh, Herod was in complete confusion as to what was going on. Right, There was a complete uh, blackout of information. And so being illegitimate, he panicked, didn't know what to do. Uh, unfortunately he came up with a plan and that plan was to wipe out all of the children that fit the profile uh, in and around Bethlehem that fit the profile of this Messiah who has just been born. Um, And he sent his soldiers and they massacred 14,000 children. 14,000 children were massacred um, in the city of, in and around the city of Bethlehem, and uh, the, the the act is nearly unprecedented in human history. Um, I'm going to find here the the scriptural passage of the uh, that that's in the new testament that describes that describes this is in Matthew chapter 2 16 through 18 one second let me just look it up it says when then Herod when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, in Ramah there was heard, a voice was heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they, they are not. The Holy Prophet Jeremiah had foreseen this. He had It had been revealed to him. And, and this, in the New Testament, uh, identifies our Lord as the subject of the Prophet Jeremiah's prophecy, that his birth would be accompanied by this terrible tragedy. But we shouldn't think that the birth of our Lord was the cause of this tragedy, right? We know that our Lord does uh, not cause evil. God is not the cause of evil. The cause of evil is the sick will of inferior, limited, finite, rational beings, demons and angels, Sorry, uh, demons and men. Demons and men cause evil by, through their, their, the wrong use of their free will. And God foresees what they do, what they will do. God, however, allows it to happen for a multitude of reasons. The reasons that he allows are known to him. But in general, we can list a few. The uh, reason for why evil is allowed, uh, one of the reasons, is for the defeat of evil. We see this in our Lord's life itself. We say that by death, he conquered death. He allowed himself to be uh, murdered. And then through his death, he conquered death. And so through evil, so so by allowing that evil to happen, he was able to overturn it. Uh, Similarly with the sin of Adam and Eve. The sin of Adam and Eve was a great evil. It was a great bad thing that happened. And yet, God overturned it. Not only did did he overturn it once, but he overturned it many times, thousands of times. Death entered into the human race. And even though death is the dissolution of the human being, separation of the soul from the body, which is a bad thing, it's it's a uh, destruction, in a sense, a partial destruction, of the image of God in man, God flipped it. He turned it into something good. He defeated its essence. He defeated it how? By dying himself. But then also, death became a break. It was the break applied to sin and to evil. Had man not died after he sinned, he would have become much worse than what he is now, uh, eternally evil. But death, the, the solution of the body and the, and the soul, the, the breaking apart of that unity, uh, prevented that great evil, that great harm. But not only that, death allows us to escape, and to finally reach the end of our race, to escape from the clutches of evil. We have to be ready for the moment of our death. But, but once we reach that end, we know that it is temporary. Death has been defeated. Uh, our, our death, our biological death, is only momentary in the grand, from the perspective of all of eternity. It's only a moment. It's only, it's very, this is why we Orthodox Christians talk about it as sleep. You fall asleep. We don't cease to exist. It's like sleep. It's a form of sleep. And so, we, this is our f- finish point when we say that the holy martyrs ran the race. So, when they died, they crossed the finish line, right? They, re- they, re- they crossed the finish line uh, keeping the faith, right? Not having denied God. Also, the monks talk about the memory of death, which sounds morbid, but it's really not. Because it's a memory of our mortality. The memory of our mortality which defeats sin. Right? And so death, we, we see how many ways, and there are many other ways, how many ways God has taken something bad and flipped it and turned it into something that benefits uh, human beings. Right? Um, there are reason, the, the reasons that God allows. For these things to happen, are known to him alone, as I said before. But in the case of the fourteen thousand innocents, uh, the Holy Church sings on uh, a few days after Christmas, there in their canon, and says that they they were illumined because of the blood of their martyrdom. It says, "When Thou wast born of the Virgin, O pre-eternal Lord." Thou didst become a babe in thy goodness. A choir, of babes, a choir of babes were admitted by virtue of the blood of their martyrdom, their calm souls illumined, O thou who art most just, and thou hast made them to dwell in the mansions of everlasting life, where they denounced the malice of Herod and his most cruel insanity. So it says that a choir of babes were admitted paradise, into the kingdom of heaven by virtue of the blood of their martyrdom and their calm souls were illumined. And so the evil that happened to them uh, was minuscule compared to to the good that happened to them, the great good. They fulfilled, their entire being was fulfilled. The purpose of their existence was fulfilled. Right? They reached the kingdom of heaven and their souls were illumined. This is what we're created for, our souls to be illumined. And so God allowed this great evil in order to bring about even greater good. But he was not the cause of this evil. The cause of this evil was Herod. And Herod will, in fact, was punished and will be judged because we know from tradition that Herod died very soon after uh, and he died a very painful death of a terrible horrible death and so in a certain sense he was punished but in another sense he hasn't been punished yet because he will be judged when our Lord comes to judge the living and the dead but let's examine Herod as the cause of this evil a little further. What, what was the cause of, why did Herod want to do this? Well, we can come up with political explanations. Well, he politics, he wanted to remain king. Yes, it's true. But ultimately, it was out of self-love. Self-love is the root of all the passions and the vices. Now, I don't mean self-love in the sense of, uh taking care of yourself. Uh, There are blameless forms of self-love, right? In particular, the blameless form of self-love is respecting yourself, taking care of yourself. Why? Because we are created, we are living and breathing icons of God. And so love for the self in this sense is love for God. We are living and breathing images of God who are called to attain to his likeness. So that's that's very significant. And we have to to love God and love our neighbor like ourselves, which also means to love ourselves in this blameless and passionless way. The love of self means something else in 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 the negative sense. Love of self, in this sense, is the love of the flesh, the love of the passions, the love of our pride, the love of our, the image of ourself, the worship of the self. And not really the worship of the self, but the, the worship of a delusional image of the self. We're attached to our delusion about ourself. Right? This is the ultimate disconnect from reality, but it's the source of all of our sins. We, when Adam and Eve fell, they became subject to death and being subject to death being mortal they then became self-loving in the negative sense because how do you preserve yourself from dying well there are of course there's a blameless way of doing it but there's also the blame worthy way and so all of us, the rest of us who are descended from them, that, that's, our, that's our, the natural progression of the human psyche and the human spiritual, uh, spiritual condition after the fall. Because of death, we sin, we fall into self-love, and that self-love generates passions, and those passions then generate sins, sinful actions, and we're con- constantly separated from God. And so Herod, out of his self-love, because he did not want to give up his comforts, he did not want to give up his power, he did not want to have an alternative vision of himself, a real vision of himself, but had this delusional vision of himself and really worshipped that as an idol. Even though he claimed to be a worshipper of the one God, he wasn't really. He wasn't literally really. Uh, because he also dabbled in other things. Uh, But ultimately, he was a self-worshipper. And uh, the Holy Fathers also say that self-love is the source of polytheism. So the two things go together, because we become attached to these things that serve the self, and we deify them. Already, when when we worship ourself, we worship something created, which is idolatry. And then the next step is to worship the things that serve the self, that serve our passions, to worship the passions themselves and be attached to them. That's polytheism. And it's from there that all the polytheistic religions are derived. So out of self-love, he slaughtered these 14,000 children, these innocent children, right? We say they're innocent because it's literally true. They, They did not have, they were not, rather, they were not, guilty of any crime that would have justified such a punishment to be put to death. Um, They were, uh, in fact, completely innocent of all crimes. They were bearers of the ancestral sin, like all of us. But the blood of their martyrdom, the fact that they were slaughtered, for Christ, in the place of Christ, uh, washed away. Because we say that the blood of martyrdom is a type of baptism. That's what the Holy Father say, That the blood of martyrdom is a type of baptism that washes away even the ancestral sin. Because, you know, many of the uh, martyrs of the ancient church were not baptized. They were still catechumens. They were still learning about the faith. And they, and God provided that They become martyrs. They they were captured by the authorities, tortured, and then put to death, and they kept the faith, did not deny Christ, and their blood was their martyrdom. Uh, And so the same thing is true of these these innocents. The blood that they spilled was their martyrdom. Uh, Among the infants that were targeted was St. John the Forerunner, who was within the Time frame. He was with, he was, he fit the profile. He was only six months older than our Lord. And St. John the Forerunner, his father was the high priest in Jerusalem, Zacharias. St. Zacharias. Uh, and we, already, we already talked about St. Zacharias, how he defended the Theotokos. And one of the reasons why he was killed by the authorities was because he had defended the Theotokos as a virgin, she's a virgin mother. And so uh, his enemies uh, had, had uh, wanted to get rid of them because of that. But also, he was a well-known figure, and the birth of his son was well-known. And in fact, it was a miraculous birth, right? Because the elderly couple, Zacharias and Elizabeth, conceived in old age, many years after the uh, St. Elizabeth's ability to conceive. Had passed. And so this is a miraculous birth that became known across all of Judea. And Herod knew about it because Herod knew the high priest. And St. John was particularly targeted because Herod suspected that it was John who was the Messiah, who was born in this miraculous way. Of course, St. John was not of the house of David. Um, at least not through his father. Uh, but nonetheless Herod didn't care didn't care at all and so um, Saint Elizabeth and Saint John had to flee into the wilderness in order to escape the massacre um, and um, uh, it says in her life that uh, the Herod's soldiers were searching for her in the hills of Jerusalem uh, and When St. Elizabeth saw that they were getting close, she began to pray to God for the safety of her child, and miraculously she was concealed in a hill from her pursuers. Uh, St. Elizabeth uh, stayed there with St. John for for a, a number of weeks, and many people don't know that she died there. She died protecting her son, died of natural causes of exposure, an elderly woman taking care of a young child in the middle of the desert, in the hill country of Judea. And she died. In the meantime, her husband was put to death in the temple by Herod's henchmen. The other reason why St. Zacharias was killed was because he would not reveal where his son was. And that became even more, uh, made people made Herod's advisors and Herod himself even more suspicious of him. Why would he not reveal the, the whereabouts of his son, who had been born in this miraculous way around the time when the Magi had seen the star? And so he was killed in the temple, and St. John was orphaned uh, as a very small child in his first year. And tradition says that St. John lived in the desert as a child, a child ascetic, until he was revealed to Israel. He emerged dramatically as, as someone reared in the desert by God and the angels. This is why he is one of the first ascetics. Right? He is, he is the first of the ascetics. We know that, uh, the first in, in the choir of the ascetics. That's why he's depicted often in icons with uh, wings, because he lived the angelic life. And we also know that, according to the Holy Fathers, he and the other ascetics, the other monks of, of, of church history, of the history of the, the Orthodox people, they, even though they're humans, they will replace, they will stand in the place of the ranks of angels that fell from heaven. In the rebellion against um, against God and Satan's rebellion, this is the other reason why the the Holy Forerunner is depicted with wings, often in icons, uh, because he is the leader of all of these humans who will stand in the place of angels, because on earth they lived an angelic life. So Saint Saint John the Forerunner, from his youth, from his near almost his infancy. Lived this ascetic way of life in the desert, uh, hill country of Judea. <laughs> um, uh, but, getting back to the infants, to the innocence, we see these innocents sacrificed out of self-love, sacrificed. And if if Herod, if Herod worshipped himself in this way, if self-love is self-worship, then we see these fourteen thousand infants as a sacrifice as sacrificial victims, yes, in the place of Christ, but Herod, who ordered their death and was the cause of their death, is the the slayer. He is the sacrificer who sacrificed them uh, at the altar, so to speak, figuratively speaking, of his self-worship. And today, today we have a similar phenomenon the feast of the feast of the the massacre of the innocents which is on the 29th of december it's the afterfeast of the nativity of our lord jesus christ the synaxarion says the afterfeast of the nativity of our lord jesus christ commemoration of the 14000 infants slain for christ's sake in beth in bethlehem of judea by herod and this feast is um, in many ways, uh, a feast that reminds us of the great crime and, and really judges us, the great crime that is committed in our own time. And that great crime is the crime of abortion, the uh, also known as infanticide, the killing of innocents, the killing of innocent, helpless human beings. Uh, who wronged no one, but only were, were brought into being by God. Yes, we know that the uh, human beings are conceived by their parents, by their mother and their father. But the decision for conception, the decision for, the, and the creation of the soul are all in the hands of God. Not every coming together leads to a conception. Uh, and the the soul is the creation of God. God implants the soul in the body. And uh, the Holy Fathers teach. We had a discussion about this uh, a few months ago. And I think in this, in this, uh, discussing this book, um, the Holy Fathers have uh, they call it a theologumenon, a theological opinion as to whether the soul is created from the souls of the father and the mother, or whether God creates the soul ex nihilo, from nothing, at the moment of conception. It doesn't really matter from our perspective uh, how God creates the soul. What matters is the fact that he does, whether it's from the, the souls of the mother and the father or from nothing. The fact is that God is involved in that. It's his decision. It's his activity. We are the result, both, both body and soul, Of his activity, Um, and life starts right at that moment, at conception. The what we can say is that abortion is a sacrifice; it's a form of sacrifice, and that these children are victims. They're sacrificial victims. We think of victims as the victims of crime. Yes, that's true, but the the original meaning of victim is the animal that's slain in a sacrifice uh, in, in, a, in a religious ritual right in most societies prior to the uh, coming of Christianity sacrifice animal sacrifice was an important part of religion animals were were, were killed usually through the, the slitting of their throat their blood was drained the blood was then sprinkled around the altar and, and throughout the community. This is the ancient Hebrews, but all Israelites, but also others like the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans did it in the same way. Um, and so that animal was slain for the sake of the deity, for the sake of the demon in the pagan uh, nations. Right. So a victim, the victim is slain for the sake of some kind of of the object of worship to to be uh, direct to be to 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 describe it simply a victim is slain for the sake of the object of worship so the fourteen thousand the fourteen thousand innocents were slain for the sake of Herod's self-worship in the same way abortion happens for the sake of Self worship. Why? Because we consider it as a society a burden. Uh, we've told young women that um, it's their particular burden to be children, uh, to bear children, um, and that that's a form of bondage. Um, we've told people as a society. We've told young women as a society that um, uh, bearing children is something that will uh, actually retards your progress, keeps you back. Bearing children is something that cuts into your comfort. Bearing children uh, requires sacrifice, the self-sacrifice for the sake of someone else. Bearing children requires the cutting off of the passions. Bearing children requires a complete transformation of the self. Bearing children requires repentance. We don't say that in society, but it's true. This is, this is the reality. Bearing children requires repentance, requires self-sacrifice, requires cutting off of the passions. And it's that that's the problem the cutting off of the passions. The, the coming together is because of passion. And then the slaying of the child is because of passion. The child is sacrificed on the altar of this passion, on the altar ultimately of self-worship. And so this makes abortion a type of religious Sacrifice. And this worship of the self, it's the its the main sacrament. And so this is why the church and every Orthodox Christian must reject this. If you don't have the ability to describe this, to defend this position to your friends or to your neighbors or to your family, then at least in your heart, never accept it. Do not live by this lie that it is a woman's right to end the life of an unborn child do not live by this lie keep it out of your heart know the truth and if you can if you do have the ability to persuade try to persuade and if you have the ability to to be active and to try to oppose legislation then we oppose legislation and if you have the ability to speak out then you speak out and if you have the responsibility to speak out to speak the truth you're a teacher if you're a parent if you're a clergyman of the orthodox church um, then it's your duty to do this it's a question um, that i think it's a chat that's open to everyone but i'll read it out loud for the sake of people that will listen later it's upsetting that this is being pushed tremendously in all aspects just the other day i uh, which is maria was searching for a Ted talk on the, conver- on the conservation of ecosystems for students. And I was listening to the speech The speaker began to suggest methods of how to combat the destruction of ecosystems to my surprise. One of his suggestions included informing young women to have only two children and no more. But they are now starting programs in third world countries that inform these young women for now. Implication is later. Actually, right here, here and now, today, um, there uh, there is a the number of births in the United States over the last year has in fact decreased by something like seven percent, uh, and this is worrying the American government because eventually, if this trend continues, there will be fewer taxpayers, working taxpayers, and there are people on uh, social security, and who's going to fund social security if there's not enough workers? But this idea that humans negatively impact ecosystems is, of course, not just absurd on the face of it, just by their existence, in other words. Yes, we can, obviously, negatively impact ecosystems if we, if we live in a, in, in, a, in a hubristic way. If our life is a hubris, living in excess, right, uh, being addicted to all the material things that we ha- we're addicted to and demanding to have them all the time, of course, leads to uh, ecological destruction. But that's not how we have to live. But the idea that just by existing, we have a negative impact on ecosystems is absurd on its face and it's, it's blasphemous in, its, in essence. It's blasphemous that God created, to say that God, that, that the world that God created for human beings to rule over not to destroy, but to rule over, to manage, to take care of, to, in fact, unite creation with God. That's our role, our special role. This is why God became a man, one of the reasons why he became a man. Um, and this is why we have the priesthood, Human beings have the priesthood, not angels. Um, but uh, the thing is that the idea that the that we can justify abortion on the basis of, of environmentalism and saving the environment is absurd. This is based also on the myth of overpopulation. Um, People didn't think that we'd be able to feed ourselves with how many billion people we have today, Uh, 200 years ago, they, they had estimated that by 1850 or 1900, the world would reach maximum capacity, but it never happened. There's another, um, uh, uh, question here: If you don't mind talking about the Orthodox standpoint on justified abortion, such as babies conceived in rape, and if you like to argue that it's justified, this is a difficult topic. It's not. It's not easy to talk about this because a rape, of course, is a violent crime, and uh, we can talk about it in the abstract. But you know, the people that suffer from this um, are uh, very. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very wounding to the soul, let alone to the body. But I think that we have to go by what our Lord says. And, and, and what our Lord says is a remedy. It's a remedy for the soul and for the body. Um, because he says that when a woman bears a child, she's in tremendous pain. But then, when the child is born, the joy that she feels for bringing a man into the world is so great that she forgets this pain. Right? And so we have to know, uh, we have to believe that our Lord speaks to everyone in this. He speaks to the mother who's conceived, who, who's, who with her husband conceived the child. He speaks to the mother who lost her husband after the child was conceived. He speaks to the mother who, whose husband abandoned her after the child was conceived. He speaks also to the mother who was raped, that, that this is that the birth of the child, the creation of new life, is never evil. It's never evil. This is one of the greatest goods—the birth of tr- the, the the continuation of the human race, the birth of children, the birth of an innocent human being who can then go grow up and become not merely a great person in the sense of having a great personality, not merely a successful person who's wealthy. That's not guaranteed, by the way. Most people will not be wealthy. Some some might become wealthy, but that's not the point. That this person might have the potential to become a saint and to become one with God, to become a God by grace. This is the real joy that our Lord is talking about, that the mother gives birth to a human being, to a, a, a logical, to a rational being who is born in the image of God. Remember what we said about blameless self-love? This also applies to, in this case, the love of a parent to the chi- of, of the of a mother for her child can be distorted into a form of self-love, but the true love of a mother for her child is the love of the image of God in the child. The veneration of the icon, the living and breathing icon of God. And that this child is born with this tremendous potential to attain the likeness of God, to draw inside himself all the divinity of Christ and become one with Christ and to sanctify those around him. This is the joy that our Lord is talking about. And this is the joy that makes someone forget, a woman forget the pain. And this is the joy that heals and to cut that off, to cut that off um, is uh, actually works against the purpose of healing, right? It, it compounds the evil. It adds evil to evil. Two wrongs do not make a right. That's basic. Um, that's part of the natural law, actually. That's the law that the, the form of morality that every person on this planet uh, feels if they have not in their conscience, if they have a, a live conscience, or at some point in their life they do this, that two wrongs do not make a right. right. There's no way to right that that evil by. And remember what we said earlier about how God allows evil to happen for, for purposes that he understands alone, but we have to have the faith and the hope that he'll out of that evil he could take that and, and completely flip it. And this is also true of one of the reasons why abortions happen is because children will be born out of wedlock. And of course, fornication is uh, a a sin, right? Uh, But the, the child born of fornication is not sinful in any way. In fact, that's the antidote that corrects, that corrects the passion. It's a corrective. So we see exactly here how God can take an evil like fornication and turn it around, turn it around and provide a corrective. And what is this corrective for? Is it for momentary happiness? No. Is it for some kind of comfort, a momentary earthly comfort? No. The corrective is has an eternal tra- trajectory all that god everything that god does in his providence he does in order to bring about the salvation of people the salvation of human beings and so if god allows this to happen then he has he has this uh, that then he brings about great good from it there are saints that were both born out of wedlock and also the children of rape uh, and, and they're great saints. And so this is something that we have to take into consideration, that life is holier than anything else. Life is greater than evil. Life is worth more than evil. It outweighs all things. It's the, one, it's the greatest good. Apart from, apart from joining with God, which is the, the ultimate good, right, the purpose why we're created, the, the the greatest thing that ever happened to us has been the life that's been given to us, the life, the biological life, and the spiritual life of the sacraments of the church. These are all great things. Um, and so we have this, uh, we have abortion. There are also a number of uh, uh, the, Abortion, of course, is a major bioethical question because it also involves the use of medicine and medical technology—not uh, in a good way. Some people think that medicine is an absolute good, but it's not an absolute good. It's a more—it's morally neutral because it be, could could be used for good or for evil. And of course, orthodox physicians strive to use medicine for good and guard themselves from ever. Causing any harm. Do no harm is, even the ancient Greeks understood this, is the maxim of of true medicine. But there are major bioethical questions confronting us today. Uh, Connected to abortion is the whole question of the uh, uh, fetal cells that are derived from abortion, uh, that are used in experimentation, that are trafficked, and that are used uh, for the uh, production and the testing of various pharmaceuticals, including the vaccines that we are, people are thinking and talking about today, at least um, all of the vaccines are implicated in this, Uh, the COVID vaccines, um, Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines uh, do not, from what I've read, do not have cells derived from abortion in them, but the researchers used cells derived from abortion, to test them. And so there's a moral implication there. Um, other vaccines, such as the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, do have these cells. We have to understand how these cells are derived. right? This is not, quote-unquote, innocent abortion that's happened. No abortion is innocent, first of all. Um, but this is, they're not cells derived from the aborted. Fetus. And a fetus, of course, in Latin just means a small infant, right? People think it's something else, but an appendage of the pregnant mother, but it's not, it's a small infant. The infant is born alive because you cannot take tissues or organs from dead donors. They don't work. Once the soul, from a spiritual point of view, which is confirmed by biology, once the soul has left the body, it's all useless. Um, And so this is also a problem with organ donation, which is a a a slightly different bioethical problem, the donation of vital organs in particular. Um, But the child is born alive and their tissues are taken. And if that doesn't shock us um, into, not just shock for the sake of shock, but shock into repentance us into repentance, I don't know what can. And then there are people that say that the, these, these pharmaceuticals that are derived from these cells are morally neutral or perhaps can be used for the good. That's impossible. It's impossible for these pharmaceuticals to be morally neutral or to be used for the good. The argument is a utilitarian argument. Utilitarianism is the idea that the greatest good uh, the good rather is the greatest benefit for the greatest number but that's not christian ethics utilitarianism itself was was developed in the early 1800s as an ethical system as an ethical system that's an alternative to christian ethics to the revealed ethics of the gospel and the and, and in, in the old testament and to the, the revealed ethics that's revealed to the natural law. The author of that law is our Lord, is God himself. That the natural law is the law that's innate in all human beings. And so utilitarianism was an uh, attempt to replace either revealed law or natural law with something else, with some kind of other formula that that... Bases the good on maximizing utility or maximizing happiness, and so the argument that says, "Well, yes, it's tragic, but so much good has come out of it," cannot stand in an orthodox, in in, among orthodox. Here's a question: In my bio courses, they talk about fetal stem cells, such as, I'm sorry, I can't pronounce that mesenchymal cells, and how beneficial it is to us humans such as their organs, they are starting to incorporate it into medicine. They aren't really hiding it anymore. They're not, they're, they're very, they're, they've been aggressive with this for a while, but now this is, we've gone into the next gear. Um, this is very problematic because these stem cells were, how, how their heart, they're not donated by someone, by someone who knows, right, we well, think about organ donation and, and there are problems with the donation of vital organs. But, but think about um, organ donation, simple organ donation, You donate one of your kidneys. You have, you have, the donor is informed and consents, informed consent is very important. Without informed consent, the harvesting of organs is a crime. Everyone accepts that. When did this child consent? How was this child informed? Never. The life of the child was just taken away for the sake of some idol, either the self-love of the mother or the, uh, for science, which has of course been deified. This is not real science. Science means knowledge. This is evil, knowledge is only, real knowledge is only knowledge of the good because the evil has no essence. Evil has no essence; it's the absence of good. So there's no knowledge of evil. There's only knowledge of good. Ign- uh, evil is ignorance. This is what science is, but science has been deified, and it's been used to um, uh, to justify evil deeds. Uh, and so we have to be on our guard. We have to know the truth. What our church really teaches about these things. Um, because we don't want evil things entering into our heart, but we also don't want to be the victims of this. We have to be informed. We don't want to submit our children to uh, medical practices that bring about moral hazard, that are a moral hazard. Um, And St. John the Forerunner, I keep coming back to what he says, uh, he says that who, who told who told you? Us. Who told you that you will escape the wrath of God? There's no escape. Our civilization is guilty of this. Our society is guilty of this. And yet, and yet, repentance is the answer. Repentance is the way out. Right? The people of Nineveh were saved because they repented. And, and we are the ones who know this. That means we have to repent, repent not to save the world, repent to save our souls. And as we save our souls, yes, the world is transformed. Um, another, another aspect here with the, um, the intake of these cells is that they've, these are the victims of abortion. They are the victims of sacrifice. And in the uh, apostolic, the first apostolic council, this is recorded uh, in the book of Acts. The holy apostles ruled that Christians, Gentile Christians in particular, but of course this applied also to Israelite Christians, um, are to abstain from foods that are sacrificed, uh, from the uh, from eating food that was sacrificed. At pagan temples, in front of pagan idols. Um, right, it says in Acts 15, abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled. Right? And then we also know that the early Christians also abstained from foods, even vegetables that were sprinkled with the blood of these sacrificial victims. In fact, as we enter the great fast, next, uh, uh, God willing, on Monday, this coming Monday is Clean Monday. A few days later, the first Saturday of Great Lent, we uh, commemorate the miracle of the Koliva of St. Theodore. And uh, this miracle happened during the reign of Julian the Apostate, who was a a Christian emperor who became pagan uh, during the 360s. And what he did was he knew that the Christians wouldn't eat meat and food, any type of food that was sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifices. And so he sent the pagan priests to sprinkle the whole marketplace, the marketplaces of the cities with the blood of the sacrifices. And so Saint Theodore appeared to the bishop of one of these cities, and he s- said, "Don't eat, because all the foods are polluted." And this is where he gave him the recipe for koliva. The koliva, the recipe from koliva, comes from Saint Theodore. One of the troparia uh, of the feast, uh, which is the first Saturday of Great Lent, says this: "Raging as fiercely as the apostate of old." The new apostate, Julian, sprinkled the blood of pagan sacrifices on the market food, polluting it as though with poison, right? Pollution, pollution which separates us from God. Moral pollution, in other words. And so this is what the other aspect here of these, um, of these biological materials, tissues, derived from infanticide the killing of innocents, uh, and their inoculation, we're we're inoculated with them. If it's done in knowledge, and many of us with other vaccines may have had that happen to us without knowing it. God judges, of course, according to what we know. But now that we know what's happening, we have to understand that this is pollution, moral pollution. We have to abstain from this. Um, and this is a difficult thing to say but it has to be said in this day and age we have to be clear and honest there's a huge spiritual problem here there's a huge spiritual dimension to all of this that we have to see very clearly so the topic of bioethics of course is perhaps bioethical questions are the greatest challenge to the church I think since the rise of the heresy of ecumenism 100 years ago Right. The heresy of ecumenism began in the 1920s. First mark was the calendar change. This is why there are some Orthodox on the old calendar still who are holding the line because they've rejected the the, the, uh, the doctrine of ecumenism. And that was a big deal. And it caused a big upheaval in the church. And there were many Holy Fathers that took this very seriously. Others who didn't. Others who said there's no connection between the calendar and dogma and doctrine. There's no, there's no ecclesiastical or spiritual dimension to the calendar change. And they wanted obedience. They demanded obedience. The hierarchy to the patriarchs. And then there were the Holy Fathers who said, this is wrong. Everything's connected. The Calendar is important. The calendar was instituted not just by humans, but through the providence of God and the activity of the Holy Spirit, right? So we had some who thought that it didn't have a spiritual dimension, and we have others who thought, who taught that it did have a spiritual dimension. And this is true for today as well. These bioethical questions are are huge. It's the biggest challenge. This might be the biggest challenge facing humanity ever since the fall. And I, and I, I don't say that lightly, and I'm very serious about that. This might be the biggest challenge. Um, because we have this the pollution, but we also have the modification, this transhumanist agenda. And so the uh, bio- bioethical questions have a spiritual dimension. Because man is both soul and body. because the body, part of the divine image, partakes in the divine image and it's called to partake in the divine likeness. It's called to be deified. It has a spiritual dimension. Bioethics has a spiritual dimension because our Lord gives us commands that relate to bioethics that relate to the, how we treat our body and what we do to our body and how we're supposed to live and when and, and, and when life is conceived, and he's the author of the natural law. Bioethics has a spiritual dimension, and it has an ecclesiastical dimension. I think if we take seriously the the feast of the the martyrdom, rather, the martyrdom of the fourteen thousand infants, and, and we 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 meditate on the hymns of that feast. If you go to your Mineon, I can put a link actually to anyone who's interested um, here in the chat for the English service. Um, Please click it before we close this window because it'll disappear after uh, after we end the session. So uh, click the link so it opens in, in your browser so you have it afterwards. And meditate on it. And pray to God. Pray to the Theotokos. What I'm going to end with is the flight to Egypt. Our Lord, his mother, his legal father, St. Joseph, and his legal siblings had to flee to Egypt. They had to flee their homeland. They had to go into hiding in order to maintain the integrity of their faith, in order to protect their God, in order to protect life. And indeed, the source of life itself. And we have to take a lesson from that. We have to we have to make sure that we have the spiritual wherewithal to endure something similar. And the only way to do that is through repentance and through the sacraments of the church. There's no physical training or uh, you know uh, academic training that'll prepare us for that. It will all fail if we don't have the spiritual training to prepare ourselves, to purify our souls, to have, to have a very clear-sighted view of ourselves, to understand exactly what our passions are and fight against them, to mortify the carnal mind, only then will we have the power. So we're a little bit over time, but I do want to leave uh, uh, some time. I do want to take some questions, if there are any questions. Okay, if there aren't any questions, then uh, we could uh, then um, end this session and we will regroup next Tuesday, which is the first Tuesday of Great Lent. May everyone have the strength, spiritual strength, to begin a fast, uh, to begin this race, this trial. I hope everyone... Uh, I wish everyone uh, the greatest gifts from God, the the, the crown at the end of this fast, at the end of this race, crown of laurels, uh, and may uh, we all have some spiritual growth, um, spiritually mature, to see the resurrection of our Lord. Everyone have a good night. Ka'ali and God be with you. Ευλογητε, thank you. καλή σαρακοστή Καλή